They met their death the previous winter in a very strange manner. Those poor men were seized with an ailment unknown to us, but not very unusual among the people we were seeking. They are afflicted with neither lunacy, hypochondria, nor frenzy, but have a combination of all these species of disease, which affects their imaginations and causes them a more than canine hunger. This makes them so ravenous for human flesh that they pounce upon women, children, and even upon men, like veritable werewolves, and devour them voraciously without being able to appease or glut their appetite, ever seeking fresh prey. From a Jesuit travel journal, 1661. Hey guys and gals out there in the hinterlands, welcome to our last episode of the season. I'm Rock, and as always, this is my co-host Max. Yeah man, last episode of the first season, mm-hmm. kind of bittersweet. I'm going to miss all of our lovely listeners out there over the break. Well, the good thing is it won't be too long. We're going to take about a month off and then plan to be back in February. When love is in the air. Maybe we'll do a groundhog episode. You know, Max, groundhogs aren't super relevant to this podcast. You wouldn't say that if you knew the real magic behind their predictions, Rock. Whatever you say, my man. Listen, let's just get back on track, shall we? Yes, let's, before we anger the groundhogs. Yeah, that's the last thing we want to do. So as you know by now, people, we're going to be your guides today as we wander the winter wonderlands and fear for our lives here at Nightmares and Daydreams. Yeah, I fear there's a lot more nightmare than daydream in this particular episode. Mm-hmm. But join us anyway while we discuss and debate our way through all things paranormal, wintry, and monstrous. And I promise we won't forget fun. Exactly. We got to have that fun. But Max, do you want to know what's not fun? I could probably think of a few things, but what do you have in mind? How about an icy predator that reaches out during the darkest days of the year to claw you to death and eat your flesh? I hate it when that happens. When it happens? So this has happened to you before? Long story, but actually this reminds me of some of the hag stories that we talked about earlier in the season. True that. Especially the Kaliak, the old Scottish hag queen of winter herself. Also Black Annis and Baba Yaga. When the season grew dark and the days grew short, one had best stay close to the hearth and home. Good point. Those hags are in many ways similar to the beings that we'll be talking about today. But instead of the hags of European lore that so many of our wonderful audiences are familiar with. Well, now they are. Indeed. And you're most welcome, friends. No, seriously, I think tonight as we huddle shivering in these longest nights, we're going to let our imaginations wander in a different direction. Yes, away from Europe and European culture to the Far East and to some Native American lore, the Native peoples in Northern Canada. What's now Northern Canada? Indeed. They are said to have like 50 words for snow. I think at least 50 words. I have heard that. Well, I have to say, I think they have at least that many wintry monsters or beings as well. And that makes sense. They have spent much of their lives in and around ice and snow. More than the average American in the U.S. anyway. Exactly. And it makes sense, to me at least, that many of their supernatural stories have to do with icy or wintry creatures. I mean, it makes sense to me too. Although I have to say, and maybe it's just the winter talking, but... I think our Inuit listeners out there... Do we have Inuit listeners? I sure hope so. Me too. If you're listening out there in the cold and dark... 
Nakurmik. We hope we do honor to your stories. And please let us know if we get anything wrong. We love to hear from our listeners, even if it's to chastise. Absolutely. We want to get the lore right. So wherever you're from, if you hear us get something wrong, especially if it's your own culture story, please let us know. Agreed. So uh, what were we talking about again? I was trying to talk and you interrupted me, I think. It doesn't sound like me at all. Your doppelganger interrupted me then. Wrong episode, Max. Get it together. You neither saw nor heard my fetch. <laughs> what I was going to say was, maybe it's the cold and darkness of winter talking, but some of these stories seem way scarier than the normal fare. Oh yeah, I was going to say, our First Nation listeners up north would probably laugh at our Texas versions of winter here. <laughs> probably, but at least we're safe from the Wendigo. Well, in hopes. I mean, I do genuinely hope that, yes. So, Max, the Wendigo is the first creature we're going to discuss. I feel a little bad about that since we just spent several minutes wooing our Inuit neighbors. I promise we'll get to your amazing stories as well. I think you might want to adjust your idea of wooing a little bit as well. What do you mean? I think it was more like annoying. Wooing, annoying. It's all pretty much the same in my experience. <laughs> <laughs> that may be the truest thing you've said so far. You're really starting to woo me, Rock. <laughs> all right, let's move on. So, Wendigos. Why don't you tell us about some Wendigos, Rock? Well, since I've done all this research, <laughs> let's do it. The Wendigo and his Algonquin legend. The Algonquin peoples, before European arrival, inhabited much of the northeastern part of the continent. Yeah, New England, Quebec, New Brunswick. And all the way to parts of the Midwest and Mid-Atlantic coast, including what is now North Carolina. Isn't that where the Roanoke colony was? Yes, sir. Wait a second. What if... What if Wendigo took out the colony? Exactly. Yikes. You know, we'll probably never know. And that's as uh, cool a theory as I've ever heard. Let's go into more detail about the Wendigo, shall we? Yes, what is the Wendigo? From the Jesuit journal that we heard at the beginning, it sounds more like a disease than a creature. Maybe that's how a modern person would view it, but the Algonquin peoples believed that the Wendigo itself was a malevolent spirit that in times of cold and famine would inhabit a person and make them ravenously hungry and insane. And the further one goes north, the more every winter is a time of cold and famine. Exactly. Now, some Algonquin cultures describe the Wendigo or the Wendigo-inhabited person as growing larger than human beings, that whenever they ate a person, they would grow proportionally until they were giant-sized. And yet they were always described as emaciated and gaunt, right? Correct. Skin and bones, as your grandma would say. I wonder how much the legend derives from the very real likelihood in certain climes at certain times of the year that humans would just become so desperately hungry that they might be compelled to eat even human flesh, mm. be driven literally mad from hunger. I mean, we hear stories like that from ancient wars and besieged cities and whatnot. I guess so. That would be a naturalistic explanation. But I'd be careful just trying to explain away such a malevolent entity with a wave of the hand. True. I mean, it's not like we can test for them. Who's to say what's happening inside the head or heart of your neighbor or family member? True that. You think you know someone and then suddenly they're trying to feast on your flesh. Yeah. And in fact, most of the Wendigo stories involved Wendigos that killed and consumed their families and friends, including their own children. I'm not sure what's worse, getting killed by a Wendigo or becoming one and being compelled to do that. And there are stories that include some level of sanity returning eventually, presumably with some sort of recognition as to the horrible deed that they've committed. One of the most famous stories of a Wendigo, or what the European doctors called Wendigo psychosis, involved a Cree trapper from Alberta, Canada, named Swift Runner. During the winter of 1878, he butchered and ate his wife and five of his children. Later, he was arrested and confessed and was eventually executed. You know, I can't even imagine. Me neither. 
Maybe let's move on to a different kind of terrible monster. I don't know how much more of Wendigo I can take. I agree. So do you have a story in mind? I do. I want to tell a story of the Ejirate. That's like the Inuit shadow people, right? To put it simply, yes. All right. Lay it on us. A young man and woman went out to the tundra to hunt. Eventually, they came upon two caribou and shot one, but couldn't shoot the other. Some caribou, it is said, just won't die. They suddenly felt very afraid. The caribou walked all around them in a circle, coming to rest again back where it started. According to native animal lore, caribou don't look back to where they came from. So they knew this was one they shouldn't kill. They'd been taught that some caribou are human. You can tell by their legs. When they grow new fur, it is very thin. This one was very thick. Terrified, they fled back to camp. Yeah, Max, I don't want to see no caribou with fat human legs. Not into it. Yeah, I don't think I'd wait for it to walk in a complete circle around me before I skedaddled. Telling you, it seems like there are a lot of shape-shifting creatures in the far north. It does, actually. And I don't know if it's a survival mechanism for the creatures. Like, you have to be able to take the form most suited for survival. Or if it's just a story trope that serves to heighten fear and suspense. You don't think it's true? No, no, no. That's not what I meant. But stories evolve over time, and especially if you have some kind of creature that's rare or difficult to see, or even worse, several creatures that have not been often firmly sighted, it might be easy to confuse them and kind of blend characteristics. Mm, maybe. Maybe you end up with several creatures and they have overlapping characteristics. Or maybe they're just part of the same order or genus or whatever. True. I mean, if they're natural beings that are classifiable in that manner, that could definitely be. So just so we don't confuse the Ijirat apologies, with other creatures, can you tell us some of the details? I think so, yeah. So the Ejirate, which is the plural form of Ejirak, please forgive us if we're not pronouncing these well, are very fast runners. It's said they can easily outrun a caribou. So according to the Google machine, a caribou can run between 37 and 50 miles per hour. That's pretty fast. I guess those reindeer games provide pretty solid training. Seems like. So what else? Apparently, they use their speed to kidnap children. Again, we're not into child kidnappers. Another feature is that they're naturally anthropomorphic or humanoid. Although I don't know how the Inuit sages or whatnot know which is their natural shape and which is their converted shape. Exactly. Maybe they're just born as reindeer, but they have the polymorph gene. Or potion. I mean, that's way easier to explain. And uh, I don't think reindeer can drink potions. They don't have opposable thumbs, you know. I think they could just like kind of grip it in their teeth and then lift up their heads, drink kind of like a grackle or something. Yeah, I'm not thinking that that's possible right there. <laughs> okay, well, anyway, okay, well, <laughs> anyway, let's just say they're anthropomorphic then, but their faces are vaguely caribou-esque. They have muzzles that look reindeer-like. However, another source I read says their eyes and mouths are sideways. Yeah, I'm not into that. <laughs> <laughs> and they dress in reindeer skin clothes, never seal skin or anything like that, because apparently they despise anything originating from the sea. That's interesting. I wonder if there's like a race of shape-shifting walruses or something that's their arch enemy. Cuckoo, choo hey, I'm just saying they might have some beef with them. Well, they're also very strong, and apparently they have mirrors through which they scry on what is happening amongst the human villages. I don't think we should assume everyone knows what scrying is, just FYI. 
Okay, sorry, people. In case you haven't taken Fundamentals of Divination, a wonderful class. It is. Couldn't recommend more strongly. Scrying is a method of clairvoyance or seeing from afar. The scryer uses a mirror or pool of water, typically some kind of reflective surface. And via magic, they're able to look into that surface and see things that are happening in distant places or sometimes even distant times. Exactly. It's magic, people. (laughs) A good example of this in movies is when Galadriel shows Frodo in the pool of water what will happen to the Shire if he doesn't succeed in destroying the Ring of Power. Exactly. Perfect example. Mm -hmm. Sometimes uh, the witch in Snow White also does this. The mirror shows her Snow White alive or whatever. And in Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell. We love that show. A wonderful little miniseries that's currently still available on Netflix as far as I know. Jonathan Strange does this a number of times in a small bowl of water. I know you're really not into books, but that's a book as well. (laughs) I guess my example was not enough. (laughs) Well, it didn't include Jonathan Strange, so no. Fair enough. So do they scry on the humans to prey on them or just see what's going on? Not sure. I couldn't find anything explicitly saying what happened in regards to the information they gathered. I mean, let's be honest, humans are pretty scary too. So maybe they just want to see what they're doing in order to steer clear. Could be, and that's a wise move. So there is one other weird thing. What's that? They're strangely averse to childbirth, like very strongly averse. Childbirth? That's weird. Yeah, apparently they're thought to cause some women who go through childbirth to go insane. Well, that's completely not cool because these new mothers haven't gone through enough already. <laughs> exactly. But it's interesting because the Inuits seem, on one hand, to call the Ijere terrifying, but they can also be helpful or beneficent in the right circumstances. We don't know if they're naughty or nice until it's too late, correct? Yeah, you can't outrun them or anything if that's what you're saying. That's exactly what I'm saying. So if you see some half-human, half-reindeer creature, you know, discretion is a better part of valor. Especially if you don't have a plus five weapon on hand. (laughs) Or the holy hand grenade of Antioch. Hold on now, though. See, this is what I'm talking about. So there's a different monster, the Tariaksuk, which is half man, half caribou monster. Ah, like a centaur. Hmm. Actually, I'm not sure which part is human. It might be more like a rainatar than the reindeer part with the reindeer part on top. That actually seems scarier. And Ijirak can appear however it chooses, I guess. Although, most of the time, you can't really even see it. According to what I've read, you can't look at it directly, or it's basically invisible. Only out of the corner of your eye can you see it. And here it runs 50 miles an hour. (laughs) And you can only see it out of your periphery. Anyone else feel a little bit scared about this thing? And it eats kids. But every now and then, it might help you bring in the groceries or whatever. So, it's not all bad. Yeah. You know, I think I'd like to leave this story behind and go to another story. Do tell. Okay, gang. So, for this one, we're leaving the New World and heading to the Far East, to Japan. Exciting. In a village of Musashi province, there lived two woodcutters, Mosaku and Minokichi. Mosaku was an old man, and Minokichi, his apprentice, was only 18. Every day they went together to a forest situated about five miles from their village. Mosaki and Minokichi were on their way home when a great snowstorm overtook them, but the woodcutters took shelter in a nearby hut. There was no place in the hut in which to make a fire. It was only a two-mat hut with a single door but no windows. They fastened the door and lay down to rest, their straw raincoats over them. At first, they did not feel very cold and they thought that the storm would soon be over. 
The old man almost immediately fell asleep, but the boy Minokichi lay awake a long time, listening to the awful wind and the continual slashing of the snow against the door. It was a terrible storm, and the air was every moment becoming colder. But at last, in spite of the cold, he too fell asleep. He was awakened by a showering of snow in his face. The door of the hut had been forced open, and by the snowlight he saw a woman in the room, a woman all in white. She was bending above Mosako and blowing her breath upon him, and her breath was like a bright white smoke. Then she turned to Minokichi and stood over him. He tried to cry out, but found that he could not utter any sound. The white woman bent down over him, lower and lower, until her face almost touched him. And he saw that she was very beautiful, though her eyes made him afraid. For a time, she continued to look at him. Then she smiled and she whispered, I intended to kill you too. But you are so young and beautiful, Minokichi. I will not hurt you now. But if you ever tell anybody about what you have seen this night, I shall know it, and then I will kill you. She turned from him and passed through the doorway. Then he found himself able to move, and he sprang up and looked out. But the woman was nowhere to be seen, and the snow was driving furiously into the hut. Minokichi closed the door and secured it by fixing several large pieces of wood against it. He wondered if the wind had blown it open. He thought he might have been only dreaming and might have mistaken the gleam of the snowlight in the doorway for the figure of a white woman, but he could not be sure. He called to Mosaku and was frightened because the old man did not answer. He put out his hand in the dark and touched Mosaku's face and found that it was ice. Mosaku was dead. By dawn, the storm was over, and a little after sunrise, Minokichi was found lying senseless by the frozen body of Mosaku. He was promptly cared for and soon came to himself, but he remained a long time ill from the effects of the cold of that terrible night. He had been greatly frightened also by the old man's death, but he said nothing about the vision of the woman in white. As soon as he got well again, he returned to work, going alone every morning to the forest and coming back at nightfall with his bundles of wood which his mother helped him sell. One evening in the winter of the following year, he was on his way home. He overtook a girl on the road. She answered Minokichi's greeting in a pleasant voice. Then he walked beside her, and they began to talk. The girl said that her name was Oyuki, that she had lately lost both of her parents, and that she was going to Yedo, where she hoped to find a job as a servant. Minokichi was quite taken by this strange girl, and the more he looked at her, the prettier she appeared to be. They walked on for a long time without speaking, but as the proverb declares, Kiga areba memokuchi ni mono wo u. When the wish is there, the eyes can say as much as the mouth. By the time they reached the village, they had become very much pleased with each other, and then Minokichi asked Oyuki to rest a while at his house. After some shy hesitation, she went there with him, and his mother made her welcome and prepared a warm meal for her. Oyuki behaved so nicely that Minokichi's mother took a sudden fancy to her and persuaded her to delay her journey to Yedo. And the natural end of the matter was that Yuki never went to Yedo at all. She remained in the house as daughter-in-law. Oyuki proved a very good daughter-in-law. When Minokichi's mother came to die, some five years later, her last words were words of affection and praise for the wife of her son. And Oyuki bore Minokichi ten children, boys and girls, beautiful children, all of them. 
the villagers thought Oyuki a wonderful person, though odd. Most of the peasant women age early, but Oyuki, even after having become the mother of ten children, looked as young and fresh as on the day when she had first come to the village. One night, after the children had gone to sleep, Oyuki was sewing by the light of a paper lamp, and Minokichi, watching her, said, To see you sewing there with the light on your face makes me think of a strange thing that happened when I was a lad of eighteen. I then saw somebody as beautiful and white as you are now. Indeed, she was very like you. Without lifting her eyes, Oyuki responded, Tell me about her. What did you see? Then Minokichi told her about the white woman that had stooped above him, smiling and whispering, and about the silent death of old Mosaku. And he said, Asleep or awake, that was the only time I saw a being as beautiful as you. Of course, she was not a human being, and I was afraid of her, very much afraid. She was so white. Indeed, I have never been sure whether it was a dream that I saw or the woman of the snow. Oiki flung down her sewing and arose and leaned over Minokichi where he sat and shrieked into his face. It was I, Yuki it was, and I told you there that I would kill you if you ever said one word about it. But for those children asleep here, I would kill you this moment. And now you had better take very, very good care of them. For if ever they have reason to complain of you, I will treat you as you deserve. Even as she screamed, her voice became thin, like a crying of wind, and she melted into a bright white mist that spired to the roof beams and shuddered away through the smoke hole. I intended to kill you, but her eyes made him afraid. Those kind of marriages never work out. Mm, yeah, you sound like you know from experience. Well, I mean, I know the stories. You are right, though. It always ends badly between mortals and beings of other realms. So, she gave him a chance, at least. Yeah, I mean, she didn't kill him, and the dude just couldn't keep his mouth shut. So she seems a lot like some of the hags we discussed in episode two, right? Kind of this primal female nature spirit? Yeah, I thought the same thing. And she has other qualities that match theirs as well. Like what? So she tends to live in mountains where she waylays travelers to feed off human life energy. There's a story where she's out in a blizzard where a human traveler passes by and sees her as she struggles through the blinding snow and she's embracing a small child. She encourages a passerby to embrace the child as well so they can all stay warm and survive. But when the human hugs the child, the child becomes heavier and heavier until the traveler becomes covered in snow and ice and sinks down and dies. Okay, so don't hug the kid. Got it. Mm -hmm. A kid ain't yours, don't hug him, especially if you're walking in the snow. You know, that's the problem, actually. You know, if you don't embrace a child, she gets mad and she throws you off the mountain. So you're kind of damned if you do and damned if you don't. <laughs> yeah, that doesn't seem fair. As we said, Max, nature's not fair and neither are monsters and supernatural monsters even less so. So true. I've been waiting for the lottery Labrador for weeks and not even a glimpse. <laughs> He's being a bad boy. I didn't want to say it, but... Interesting, though, like the Ijirak, the Yuki Ona can sometimes be nice. Like in the story. Well, sort of. And there's one story of how a person treated the Yuki Ona nicely, and the next morning she had turned to gold. Okay, forget the lottery Labrador. I need me a Yuki Ona. I don't think she'd do well here in central Texas. Curse my luck. 
<laughs> I think that's going to do it for us tonight, friends. And as always, we hope you enjoyed our stories. Yes, lovely people. And if you did, tell your friends about us. Get them to listen too. And don't forget to review us on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you listen to podcasts. We'll love you forever. Or at least like you tremendously. <laughs> and again, guys, like we said earlier in the show, this is our last one of the season. We'll be back in February with a whole new laundry list of nightmares and daydreams to share with you. And as always, like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter, Instagram. The music for our show is Calliope's Call by the beautiful Teresa Joy. Find and follow her at Viralbright, B-I-O-B-R-I-T-E, on the gram and Facebook. And the fire's burning low, Rock. Okay. I'll grab some wood. Man, it's really gotten dark outside. Hey, Max, make sure the doors are locked. And as always, sweet dreams. Sweet dreams.